L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. Throughout the winter and spring of 1979, the disco hits just kept on coming. But at the same time, the backlash against disco kept growing. And no one was prepared for the violent way it would all crash and burn or that baseball would be involved. I'm Steve Greenberg, and this is Speed of Sound. Right from the start, the disco scene had always been dominated by female vocalists, the so-called disco divas. And at the very dawn of the disco era, there was no disco diva bigger than Gloria Gaynor. In 1974, she had one of the earliest disco hits with her cover version of Never Can Say Goodbye. And pretty soon after that, she was officially crowned Queen of the Discos by the National Association of Discotech DJs. But by 1976, the hits dried up for Gloria Gaynor. And then, in early 1978, she suffered a bad fall while performing on stage at the Beacon Theater in New York City. The morning after that fall, she woke up to find herself paralyzed from the waist down. She needed surgery to remove a ruptured disc and to fuse two of the vertebrae in her spine. She regained her ability to walk, but she was in a lot of pain. Gloria Gaynor was hell-bent, though, on not letting that accident end her career. And so, in the summer of 1978, she went back into the recording studio, wearing a back brace, to record a new single. The song that Gloria Gaynor's record company intended as her single was called Substitute. Now, that song had been a hit in Europe the year before by a South African girl group called Clout. Gloria Gaynor wasn't thrilled about recording Substitute, but between her lack of recent hits and her accident, she knew she was in a precarious position with the record label. 
There were rumors she was about to be dropped, and she'd actually heard about staffers at the label joking in the halls that the queen is dead. So she gave Substitute her best shot and put a disco spin on the song. When it was time to record a B-side to the single, Gloria Gaynor's producers handed her a brown paper bag that had lyrics scribbled on it. The lyrics were mostly written by co-producer Dino Fakaris, and they were inspired by his having been fired from his job as a staff writer for Motown Records a couple of years earlier. The song was called I Will Survive. As soon as Gloria Gaynor read the lyrics to I Will Survive on that brown paper bag, before she ever even heard the melody, she was convinced her record label was making a huge mistake. As she recalled years later, I read the lyrics and I'm like, what are you, nuts? You're going to put this on the B side? This should be, this should be the A side. When we recorded it, I took it to the record company. They wouldn't even listen to it. The president chose the other song. Nobody wanted to buck the president's baby. Well, the record label released Substitute in September of 1978, and it peaked at number 107 on the chart. So Gloria Gaynor, on her own, took I Will Survive to Richie Kazor, the DJ at New York's top disco, Studio 54. Richie Kazor immediately fell in love with the record, and he started playing it. But every time he put it on at Studio 54, the song cleared the dance floor. Now, Richie Kazor was one of those great DJs who really believed it was the DJ's job to educate the dancers in the club. And so he just kept on playing I Will Survive. He even gave copies of it to his DJ friends at other clubs. Eventually, it started to get exactly the reaction Richie Kazor knew it would. And at that point, New York radio stations began to get phone calls from people who'd heard it in the clubs and wanted it played on the radio. Well... I Will Survive was a smash hit as soon as it got on the air. It hit number one nationally in March of 1979, and of course it's gone down as a classic. One of the most iconic songs of the entire disco era, and a timeless anthem of empowerment. I Will Survive was co-written and produced by a man named Freddie Perrin, who really should have been a lot more famous than he ever was, being that he was one of the most successful hitmakers of the 1970s. Freddie Perrin was yet another member of that Motown producing collective known as The Corporation, who wrote and produced all the early Jackson 5 hits. Big number one smashes like I Want You Back, ABC, and The Love You Save. Then, when disco came along, Freddie Perrin jumped on the bandwagon early and had a number one hit in 1976 with the Miracles Love Machine. Now, this was a particularly impressive achievement, being that the member most identified with the Miracles sound, lead singer and songwriter Smokey Robinson, had actually left the group a couple of years earlier. Freddie Perrin's success with Love Machine was a great example of how disco truly was a producer's medium, where stars were welcome, but not necessary. Perrin then left Motown, and just a few months later, he produced another number one record, Boogie Fever by the family group The Silvers. Boy, 
After producing some disco hits by another family act, Tavares, movie producer Robert Stigwood asked him to produce a Tavares version of the Brothers Gibbs song, More Than a Woman, for the film Saturday Night Fever. Robert Stigwood and Barry Gibb liked Freddie Perrin's production of that song so much that they asked him to produce another song for the movie, Yvonne Elliman's recording of the Gibbs composition, If I Can't Have You. And this gave Freddie Perrin yet another number one record. Then, in 1979, hot on the heels of producing I Will Survive, Freddie Perrin co-wrote and produced a pair of smash hits for Peaches and Herb. Now, Peaches and Herb were this R&B duo who'd been on the scene since the mid-60s, but who hadn't had a hit in over 10 years. After going into the studio with Freddie Perrin, though, Peaches and Herb found themselves, in the spring of 1979, at the top of the charts with two hits simultaneously. First, there was the party anthem, Shake Your Groove Thing. Soon to be joined by the number one hit, Reunited, the ultimate disco era slow dance. As Casey Kasem explained on American Top 40. You know, even the hottest discotheques don't keep the beat pounding all night long without a break. We surveyed dozens of disco record distributors and disco DJs across the country, and we found out that most discos like to program one slow number every 45 minutes to an hour. Let's hear the top disco ballad of all. Peaches and Herbs... Reunited. I was a fool to ever leave your side. Me minus you is such a Reunited was, incredibly, the only ballad to hit number one in the midst of the disco onslaught that dominated pop music for the first eight months of 1979. Journalist Dave Marsh wrote at the time of being overwhelmed at Discovering Peaches and Herbs reunited on the radio one Sunday morning and stopping the car, breathless that soul music still lived. While Gloria Gaynor was riding the disco wave to new heights, a slew of other disco divas were having big hits as well. The all-male production teams at the heart of disco just loved to work with female singers as the vehicles for their productions. And so, the first half of 1979 saw the greatest preponderance of female voices at the top of the pop charts of any period in history up to that point. The parade of disco divas was seemingly endless. There was Amy Stewart, who hit number one with a cover of the old Stax hit, Knock on Wood, showing once again that you didn't even need a new song to have a disco hit. A disco version of any great song might just do the trick. Then there was Anita Ward, a school teacher from Memphis who shot to the top of the chart with her only hit, a sexually suggestive record called Ring My Bell. There was Linda Clifford. There was Alicia Bridges. Please don't talk about 
There was Cheryl Lynn, who was discovered on a TV talent contest called The Gong Show, which led to a hit with the song Got To Be Real. And unexpectedly, there was newcomer Debbie Harry, front woman of the group Blondie, who, despite coming up through the ranks of punk clubs like CBGB's, went disco for her very first American hit, the number one record, Heart of Glass. And in addition to their own female-fronted band, Chic, Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards were also the Svengali's behind the success of another female act, Sister Sledge. He's the greatest Nile Rogers recalls that before agreeing to work with Sister Sledge, Jerry Greenberg, the president of Sheik's label, Atlantic Records, offered Rogers and Edwards the chance to produce the Rolling Stones. Now, Bernard and I were smart enough to know that <laughs> Keith Richards basically was the guitar player, and I'm not going to play Keith Richards' parts. So we only wanted to do artists that we could be the band, because we knew that we could control the outcome, so to speak. We didn't know how to write other people's music. We had to write our own music and they would sing it. So Jerry Greenberg talked to us about this group called Sister Sledge and how they were like family to the label and blah, blah, blah. And when we got home, we looked at all of his notes and basically Jerry Greenberg uh, laid out the blueprint for the lyrics to We Are Family. I mean, it really was almost identical we looked at his pitch to us and we just started moving one line to here and moving another line to there and we would write a rhyming scheme to go along with that line. And we had We Are Family. Basically, at that point, we got back to him and said, sure, we'll do Sister Sledge. Sister Sledge's hits, He's the Greatest Dancer and We Are Family, really captured that communal spirit of the clubs where dancers felt like a real family, at least for that night. Rogers and Edwards' hits with Sister Sledge were more poppy, less dark and washed out than the songs they released as Chic. Sister Sledge were, in fact, disco at its most joyous. We Are Family was even adopted as the theme song of the 1979 Pittsburgh Pirates, who won the World Series that year. Now, amidst the crowded field of female disco divas, one male singer did manage to attain legendary status. Sylvester James Jr., known professionally simply as Sylvester, emerged out of San Francisco's gay club scene, and he was a true original. As a member of the avant-garde drag troupe, the Coquettes, Sylvester had finally honed his campy, cross-dressing character. And he was already a local legend in the early 70s when he was discovered by the singer Boz Skaggs and Rolling Stone magazine publisher Jan Wenner, who got him a record deal, which led to a couple of unsuccessful rock albums. Sylvester turned to disco in 1975, presenting himself as unabashedly gay, which made him pretty unique in an America where homophobia was still the norm. 
and where most gay artists projected a persona that was, at most, sexually ambiguous. Musically, Sylvester was a real pioneer. Along with his producer, Patrick Cowley, he essentially invented the subgenre known as high energy with his hit record, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. This record was a pioneering song of gay affirmation and it became a most unlikely pop hit in the winter of 79. The song combined Sylvester's incredible falsetto vocals with mechanized drums and synthesized keyboard lines, creating this frantic record that music critic Robert Criscow referred to as a surge of relentless stylized energy. Sylvester remained one of the biggest artists in dance music, as well as a gay icon for the rest of his life, tremendously influencing all of electronic dance music until he died of AIDS in 1988. Incidentally, in 2019, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real joined I Will Survive, La Freak, Donna Summer's I Feel Love, and the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack as the only disco records designated for preservation in the Library of Congress's registry of culturally significant recordings. Pretty cool. Now, toward the end of his life, Sylvester began to be known as the queen of the discos. But of course, the biggest disco diva of them all was Donna Summer. After her breakout moment in the movie Thank God It's Friday, Donna Summer went on an unbroken streak of massive hits, all produced by Giorgio Moroder and Pete Bellotta. She followed up Thank God It's Friday's Last Dance with a disco version of the old Jimmy Webb song, MacArthur Park. And that gave her the first of four number one songs that she'd have over the next 12 months. But it was the release of her masterpiece, the double album Bad Girls in the spring of 79, that shot Donna Summer to the very pinnacle of pop stardom. Bad Girls was one of the few truly great albums to emerge from disco which was very much a singles-dominated genre. And it was the soundtrack to the summer of 1979, with its two number one singles, the title song and the incredible Hot Stuff. Hot Stuff was really innovative for a disco song in that it incorporated rock guitars courtesy of Steely Dan's Jeff Skunk Baxter. As such, it paved the way for the great R&B and rock fusion records of the 80s, like Michael Jackson's Beat It. But outside of Donna Summer and Sylvester, disco really produced very few homegrown stars. The producers, the DJs, and even the people on the dance floor remained bigger than the singers. Ray Caviano of Warner Brothers Records' disco department remarked at the time, 35% of all disco acts are a figment of some producer's imagination. While a lot of what was being released in this period no doubt did sound synthetic, a couple of authentic, old-school, soul-influenced records still managed to sneak through. And unsurprisingly, they both came from Philadelphia. Gamble and Huff's Philadelphia International Records had been more or less left behind after so many of their musicians defected to Sal Soul Records a couple of years earlier. But 
they managed to release one last great disco hit during the onslaught of 79. Ain't No Stopping Us Now rivaled I Will Survive as the great empowerment anthem of the disco years. It was recorded by the duo McFadden and Whitehead, who'd written some of the great earlier Philly hits by the OJs and Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. They wrote Ain't No Stopping Us Now to protest Gamble and Huff's constant discouragement of their desire to be the singers on their own songs. And the song represented the aspirational aspect of disco at its apex. Meanwhile, Philly International's arch-rival, Sal Soul Records, went at them toe-to-toe with the year's other great disco soul record, Instant Funk's Got My Mind Made Up. That record was produced by Philly veteran Bunny Sigler, but it only became a disco smash after it was remixed by Larry Levan, the DJ at the New York disco Paradise Garage. Bunny Sigler hated the remix, but then he got dragged down to the Paradise Garage and he saw firsthand that Larry Levan really did know best about what worked on the dance floor. While Studio 54 was grabbing the headlines due to its celebrity clientele, the Paradise Garage was, by 1979, the place to be for the serious dancers. The garage was sometimes referred to as the Studio 54 for Blacks and Latinos, with a crowd of up to 2,000 dancers being whipped into a state of ecstasy by Larry Levan's DJing and the club's overwhelming sound system. Warner Brothers promo man Bobby Shaw recalled his many nights at the garage. It was in an old garage building. You walked up a ramp, you could hear them, the bass and the music while you're walking up the ramp. The room held a couple of thousand people. Larry LeVan towered over the room. There was free food. Uh, there was a roof that uh, was, music was piped into the roof. You could hang out there if you'd like. But it was all about Larry and the music, bottom line. I mean, the club was amazing. The space was amazing. But it was all about the vibe. Everybody was there to dance. There weren't people there just to go and hang out. People went to dance. Larry LeVan became known as the DJ who could turn a record into a hit just by playing it at the garage. This was due in large part to his friendship with Frankie Crocker, the program director at New York's R&B radio station, WBLS. Frankie Crocker, in turn, used his relationship with Larry LeVan to bring his station to number one in the ratings by being the first on a whole slew of the hottest records. The LeVan-Crocker nexus made Larry LeVan the club DJ that record company men most wanted to get to know. Bobby Shaw remembers. Frankie Crocker was the main DJ, WBLS. He had a show Monday to Friday, 4 to 8, highest rated show in New York City. And he sold a lot of records. You got on, you got on Frankie Crocker's show, you sold records. Now, he would come and listen to Larry and would literally take the records from Larry that he liked and they would be on the show Monday morning. In theory, Larry was almost like the programmer for Frankie Crocker's station. By early 1979, disco essentially ruled American pop culture. There were 20,000 discos in the U.S. And by the middle of the year, there were more than 200 all-disco radio stations. By the summer of 1979, more than half the records in the top 10 on any given week were disco records. 
People started to refer to the disco era as though it was now the successor to the rock era. The airwaves were saturated, and over a million people were going out disco dancing every week across America. Between clubs and records, disco was an $8 billion industry. Coming up next, some of the biggest and most surprising recording artists cash in on the disco craze. L-A-S-I-K LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K LASIK.com This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. The disco business was booming, and so, in a bid to stay relevant, seemingly every recording artist in the business was going disco. Glam rockers Kiss went disco. Cher went disco. Barbara Streisand went disco. Even former Beatle Paul McCartney felt the need to go disco. And this got him a top 10 hit called Good Night Tonight. Rod Stewart went disco with his massive number one hit, Do You Think I'm Sexy? However, that song's authorship was complicated. 
In response to a lawsuit, Rod Stewart admitted to unconsciously plagiarizing the record Taj Mahal by Brazilian artist Georgie Ben. But do you think I'm sexy had more problems than just that? You see, the song's signature instrumental line... turns out to have been lifted from a Bobby Womack record called Put Something Down On It. To anyone that's looking for love, that's why I'm telling you. In response to another lawsuit, Rod Stewart admitted to consciously plagiarizing that one. Anyway, for more than seven months straight, every number one song in America was a disco hit, if you include What a Fool Believes by the Doobie Brothers, and you must. The Doobie Brothers label, Warner Brothers Records, knew they could never get what a fool believes to number one in the middle of a disco deluge without aiming straight for the club crowd. So they had the record remixed by a really big New York City DJ named Jim Burgess, who extended the Doobie Brothers' original three-and-a-half-minute single to nearly six minutes and added extended instrumental breaks and a more pronounced four-on-the-floor rhythm track. The strategy worked. Jim Burgess's disco mix got What a Fool Believe lots of club play, which landed it on the disco chart. And then Frankie Crocker started playing it on WBLS, having heard Larry LeVan play the remix at the Paradise Garage. This helped the remix make it onto the R&B chart, and all this action together gave the record the final push it needed to become the biggest record in the country. Now, the reason fads become massive is that there's a shared feeling that you need to participate in order to be cool and current. But when your middle-aged uncle puts on his disco shirt and jumps on board, it becomes pretty clear that participating means you're involved in something that's already going out of fashion. The discos in strip malls across America had very little in common with the communal, multicultural clubs that gave disco its start. Clubs that had cutting-edge DJs discovering the coolest tracks. No, these discos were more like pickup bars with DJs playing the biggest hits from the radio ad nauseum. The more mainstream disco became, the less it seemed cool. And that's when the backlash began in earnest. Now, there'd been disco haters almost as long as there'd been disco. Way back in November of 1975, an editorial in the very first issue of Punk Magazine declared, Death to disco shit. Long live the rock. Kill yourself. Jump off a fucking cliff. Become a robot and join the staff at Disneyland. OD. Anything. Just don't listen to disco shit. And the phrase disco sucks itself had been around since late 1976. But by 1979, things got taken to a whole other level. You see, rock fans had this nagging fear that rock music was going to die out, especially after disco dominated that year's Grammy Awards, which were held in February. The disco group A Taste of Honey won the Grammy for Best New Artist, defeating, among others, future Rock and Roll Hall of Famers Elvis Costello and The Cars. Saturday Night Fever won the Grammy for Best Album. All in all, eight of the 14 televised awards went to disco records. The Grammy's sweep led the press to publish an avalanche of articles about the disco juggernaut. 
Donna Summer appeared on the cover of Newsweek above a headline that read, Disco Takes Over. And Time Magazine ran a piece condemning Disco's diabolical thump and shriek. That spring, the backlash began to increase in intensity. And it had as its focal point a manufactured group from New York City. In 1977, French producers Jacques Morali and Henry Bololo were looking for their next big act, having already had a taste of success early in the disco era with the Ritchie family. One evening, Jacques Morali saw a man in New York's most well-known gay enclave, the West Village, walking down the street dressed as a Native American chief. Morali followed this man into a club where it turned out he worked as a dancer. Morali then noticed a club patron in a cowboy hat eyeing the chief as he danced, and suddenly he had a brainstorm. He'd form a disco group filled with iconic masculine characters in full costume. In addition to the cowboy and the chief, Morali and Bololo added a police officer, a construction worker, and a biker. But those characters weren't needed to actually sing on the record. They'd just be played by models for the photo on the album cover. Morali and Bololo already had the only singer they'd need to sing all the parts on the album a man named Victor Willis, who was in the original Broadway cast of The Wiz and who possessed a really strong R&B voice. The resulting album, credited to the fictional group Village People, was a musical road trip through the centers of gay life in America. The songs were about San Francisco, Hollywood, Greenwich Village. There was even a song about the New York summer getaway Fire Island, known for its gay clubs which had helped incubate the early disco sound at the start of the 70s. Now... The Village People album appeared in the summer of 1977, that pre-Saturday Night Fever period when Top 40 Radio wasn't giving many disco acts a shot. So while tracks from the album spent seven weeks on top of the Billboard disco chart, the album's biggest single, San Francisco, peaked at number 102 on the pop chart. But then, the Village People Project got a lucky break. Their label, Casablanca Records, the same label Donna Summer recorded for, booked an appearance for the group on Dick Clark's American Bandstand TV show. The only problem was there were no actual Village People. There was just Victor Willis. Jacques Morali quickly took an ad out in a theatrical trade paper which read, Macho types wanted, must dance and have a mustache. And that's how the members of the village people were recruited, with Victor Willis being assigned the role of the policeman. Well, the cover of the group's next album, Macho Man, featured the actual group members who'd been cast instead of the anonymous models. Its title track actually made it into the top 30, but that was just a prelude to what was coming. The group's third album, Cruisin', kicked off with a song called YMCA. On its surface, the song extolled the virtues of visiting the local YMCA, where inexpensive short-term lodging was available to men who needed a place to stay. However, in U.S. gay culture at that time, when most gay men were still closeted, the YMCA was known as a spot for cruising and hooking up. Upon its release, YMCA became a massive worldwide hit. And when the group performed it on American Bandstand, it was the kids in the audience who came up with the now classic YMCA dance, still done at every baseball game in Bar Mitzvah. With YMCA getting such massive exposure across the media, Victor Willis, who was straight, 
went to great lengths to avoid admitting the song's gay subtext. He claimed that the song was celebrating the YMCA as a place where urban youth could play sports. It helped that the song's lyrics were ambiguous enough to allow for plausible deniability. At first, most of straight America truly didn't understand that the village people's songs were odes to gay lifestyle. People in the heartland, especially older people and children, had no idea that the YMCA or Fire Island were bastions of American gay culture. These were just fun tunes to dance to. The tough guys in my high school all pumped iron in the school's weight room while blasting Macho Man at top volume. Now, the subject of the Village People's next single was the U.S. Navy. Like the YMCA, the Navy had a reputation in gay culture as being a place where recruits could discreetly pursue same-sex relationships. But this concept was also unfamiliar to most of straight America. And so, when it was released in the spring of 1979, In the Navy sounded to a lot of listeners almost like a recruiting jingle for the U.S. Navy. The Navy actually reached out to Henry Bololo and asked if they could use the song in their TV recruiting commercials. Bololo struck a deal to grant them the rights for free in exchange for the Navy letting the village people shoot their music video for the song aboard one of its battleships, the USS Reason. Well, after the release of the In the Navy video, it was brought to the attention of the U.S. Navy brass that the song wasn't really about what it seemed, and the Navy immediately canceled the plan to use the song in its recruiting commercial. Moreover, there was a resentment starting to build in some quarters over the belief that the village people had somehow fooled the U.S. military into giving its official endorsement to the gay lifestyle. Conservative activist Anita Bryant took to television to warn that homosexuals are producing records with double meaning and having straight children buy them. And a lot of those tough guys from my high school were angry and wanted to lash out, not just at the village people, but at all of disco. It didn't help disco's cause that a lot of the records flooding the airwaves that spring weren't very good. Because radio airplay could sell more albums than playing clubs could, the major labels had started to bypass the clubs with their poppiest disco releases, aiming their promotion efforts straight at disco radio stations. You see, club success wasn't enough for the major labels. They wanted bigger. They wanted crossover and album sales. As a result, radio regained control over the label's attention. Quality suffered. For every good club record, there was a putrid hit on the radio like David Naughton's Making It, a record entirely devoid of soul, which was created as the theme song of a very short-lived TV sitcom about a disco-crazed young guy in New Jersey who worked at an ice cream parlor. The disco gold rush incentivized record labels to take too many records into the market in order to cash in. Pioneering disco label owner Eddie O'Loughlin remembers it this way. 
The majors were coming in, and you can tell nobody was listening to music. They were like, okay, give us 20 records. Some people would take 10, 30, whatever, from the various producers, and just throwing the records out, and it just it was starting to become very, very difficult and very tiring, actually, and not even feeling creative. It was very much business-driven at that point. Robbed of that crucial filter of a DJ with good taste playing music for a discerning audience of dancers, lots of bad records began to get exposure. The beat became dumbed down to accommodate the increasingly unsophisticated audience frequenting the discos. A publication emerged called the Disco Bible, which cataloged beats per minute for every new release to help all those shopping mall DJs create a seamless flow. But seamless also meant sameness and an increasing uniformity began to creep in. Even Norman Harris from the pioneering disco production team of Harris, Baker & Young complained to Billboard that, I get tired of hearing the same thing for too long. A local New York newspaper condemned radio station WBLS as, Rhythm and blues without the blues. And journalist Andrew Holleran lamented that the disco music of 1979 was light years away from the old dark disco, which did not know it was disco, which was simply a song played in a room where we gathered to dance. Longtime music executive Corey Robbins remembers the disco glut of that period. A lot of these other labels, Butterfly Records and even TK, they started putting out these mechanical 17-minute aside records that were so similar and, and they didn't have any soul to them. And, and uh, eventually, you know, I mean, you'd go to the record pool and you'd get 75 records a week all of a sudden and most of them were, were, were garbage. So there were gems in there, but yes, the, the, once the money really got big in disco, everybody was jumping in. Indeed, just about everyone who ever had a record deal got into the act. Sesame Street did a disco album called Sesame Street Fever, which included an appearance by BG Robin Gibb. You see, I wasn't born with much, set the sun and moon and such, so I handle it all happily. Trash. And so did Arthur Fiedler in the Boston Pops, whose disco album bore the cringe-worthy title Saturday Night Fiedler. Coming up next, Disco Backlash goes into overdrive, fueled by a gas shortage and some very vocal DJs. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. During the 4th of July weekend, 1979, at the absolute height of disco oversaturation, Casey Kasem's American Top 40 broadcast a special countdown of the 40 biggest hits of the disco era. During the course of the broadcast, Casey took time to fill us in on disco economics. Want to know the power of disco in dollars and cents? These days, the American recording industry sells about $4 billion worth of records and tapes every year. Disco music accounts for about a billion of that. But that's nothing compared to the other dollars disco is moving. Like the $8 billion bucks we the people spent last year for admissions, food, and drink in America's 20,000 discotheques. And that doesn't even include all the money spent on disco hairdos, clothes, dance lessons, and roller skates. He also issued a warning about the physical dangers of too much disco dancing. You know, disco dancing has led to a new medical specialty called Discogenics, which deals with back injuries caused by getting down too strenuously. As the countdown reached its conclusion, Casey Kasem revealed La Freak as the number one song of the disco era. But Casey couldn't possibly have known that the end of the disco era was mere weeks away. Now, there were lots of warning signs that a reckoning was coming. Disco Sucks t-shirts and bumper stickers could be seen everywhere that summer. And disco music began to find itself the butt of jokes. The popular comic strip Doonesbury did a whole week of daily installments making fun of the disco scene. One of those strips featured a rock radio DJ who, under pressure from his program director, plays YMCA and Bad Girls, but introduces them contemptuously as... Exciting testaments to the social sensibilities of disco. One of them is about meeting adolescent homosexuals in a public gymnasium, and the other is a celebration of prostitution. Then, a record literally demonizing disco became a national hit. The Charlie Daniels Band were Southern rockers who, until 1979, were best known for a novelty single six years earlier called Uneasy Rider. He let out a yell that it'd curl your hair But before he could move, I grabbed me a chair And said, watch him, folks, because he's a thoroughly dangerous man Well, you may not know it, but this man's a spy He's an undercover... On their summer of 79 top 10 hit, The Devil Went Down to Georgia They told the tale of a country fiddler named Johnny Who accepts a challenge from Satan to see who's the better fiddle player The best has ever been Johnny, rising up your bow and play your fiddle hard Cause hell's broke loose in Georgia and the devil deals the cards The song plays out over a country rock beat, except for the part when it's the devil's turn to play. Then, suddenly, 
it becomes a disco record. Then a band of demons joined in and it sounded something like this. Well, predictably, the disco devil is vanquished by the hillbilly rocker. While at the same time in the real world, rock fans were organizing to do the same against disco music at large. In Seattle, hundreds of anti-disco protesters attacked a mobile dance floor. The dancers dispersed, and the dance was canceled. In Portland, Oregon, a disc jockey named Bob Anchetta destroyed a stack of disco records with a chainsaw in front of a cheering live audience. There was an absolute epidemic of anti-disco activity on the part of rock DJs that summer. Daryl Wayne of KROQ in L.A. held a disco funeral where he buried disco records in the sand at the beach. In San Jose, DJ Dennis Erectus hosted a regular feature called Erectus Rex Record, where he sped up disco records, then dragged the needle across the record to the sound of people throwing up. We had another episode of Wreck Our Record. This time it was Casey and the Sunshine Band with Shake Your Booty. But we fixed them, didn't we? A slew of rock stations sponsored anti-disco clubs. WWW Detroit's version was called the Disco Sucks Clan, a name that was particularly offensive. And it all came to a head the second week of July, 1979, just a week after that Casey Kasem disco era countdown. This was the same week that President Jimmy Carter gave his famous Malays speech, where he went on television to complain about a crisis of the spirit that he felt had led Americans to forsake God and family. Too many of us now tend to worship self-indulgence and consumption. Human identity is no longer defined by what one does, but by what one owns or who discovered that owning things and consuming things does not satisfy our longing for meaning. Indeed, America was experiencing something of a malaise that summer. The economy was failing, crime was on the rise. These two factors contributed to increasing tension between African Americans and whites in the major American cities. On top of that, in the wake of the Iranian Revolution, there was another gas shortage. People began panic buying and long lines appeared at gas stations. For disco, the more notable event of that second week of July was Disco Demolition Night. A rally held at Comiskey Park in Chicago between games of a White Sox doubleheader. The event was organized by a local rock DJ named Steve Dahl, who was fired by radio station WDAI when it went all disco at the end of 1978, only to be hired by rock station WLUP the next March. On his new station, Steve Dahl continually ranted against the evils of disco, and his audience loved it. He'd mock his former station's Disco DAI slogan as Disco D-I-E. He formed a club called The Insane Polvo Lips, of course, is the anti-disco army dedicated to the eradication of disco dystrophy in our lifetime. 
The army was named after the coho salmon, a fish that had recently been introduced into Lake Michigan in order to eradicate an infestation of a parasite known as the lamprey eel, which was threatening to wipe out the lake's population of edible fish. Get it? Steve Dahl was really hateful. When Van McCoy, the creator of the hit disco song, The Hustle, suddenly died in early July, Dahl celebrated by playing a few seconds of The Hustle before destroying the record on the air. Even before Disco Demolition Night at Comiskey Park, Dahl had hosted at least two anti-disco events that required intervention by the Chicago police. At those events, Dahl told homophobic anti-village people jokes and then led the crowd in chants of, Disco sucks. Dahl also released his own anti-disco song parody called Do You Think I'm Disco, in which the narrator realizes the banality of his disco life and turns to rock and roll for salvation. Please dance with me. I wear tight pants. I always stuff a sock in. It always makes the ladies start to talk in my shirt. Now, Steve Dahl remembered that the White Sox had held a disco night promotion at Comiskey Park a couple of years earlier, and he managed to convince the White Sox organization to let him now hold Disco Demolition Night. Anyone who brought a disco album to the stadium that night would be admitted for 98 cents. Dahl announced he'd blow up all the disco albums on the field between games of the doubleheader. Now, a typical White Sox doubleheader that season drew 20,000 fans, but on this night, more than 50,000 people showed up. Even after the game was declared sold out, thousands of fans jumped the turnstiles to get into the stadium, all for the chance to see Steve Dahl blow up the records and to chant Disco Sucks en masse. It was an almost entirely white crowd. A lot of people in the crowd didn't actually hand in their disco albums to be blown up. Instead, they threw them around the stadium like frisbees. Baseball player Rusty Staub of the visiting Detroit Tigers urged his teammates to wear their batting helmets while on the field during the first game of the doubleheader because of the flying albums. Plus, there were firecrackers and bottles being thrown on the field. And the stage was really set for trouble when, in an attempt to stop that endless stream of turnstile jumpers, most of the stadium security staff left the field area to stand watch over the gates. As promised, Steve Dahl, dressed in an army uniform, complete with a combat helmet, blew up the collected records in center field as the crowd shouted, Disco sucks and death to disco. Racial and homophobic epithets were also thrown into the mix. With almost no security staff inside the stadium, thousands of attendees stormed the field. Firecrackers and debris were being thrown. The crowd then lost control and trashed the stadium, ripping up the field, stealing the bases, and setting the remaining disco records on fire across the outfield. Bill Veck, who owned the White Sox, stood on the field with a microphone pleading with the fans to cease the mayhem but it was in vain. One of the saddest sights I've ever seen in a ballpark in my life. This garbage of demolishing a record has turned into a fiasco. The rioting only stopped when Chicago police arrived in full riot gear, clearing the field and arresting 39 people. With the field destroyed, the White Sox forfeited the second game of the doubleheader. 
Now you have to ask yourself, what was behind the riot? What were they reacting against? It wasn't disco's hedonism. There's no indication that the anti-disco people were any more moral than the disco crowd. Rock fans claimed that disco represented everything that was synthetic and aristocratic while rock was populist and real. But the truth was a lot more complex. I mean, the stadium rock of that period demanded a relationship between performers and fans in which the fans were just passive spectators. But this dynamic was actually reversed inside the discos where the musical performers were nearly anonymous and the dancers in the audience were the real stars. So what was it? In the final analysis, the makeup of the crowd and its tone made it clear that what was really going on was a public lynching in absentia of the perceived growing influence of black culture and gay culture in America. Disco music had ignored straight white men in favor of African-American divas and gay male dancers. Rockers felt the need to destroy disco and the altered sexual hierarchy it stood for. In a depressed industrial city like Chicago, white men needed to demonstrate that they still had their masculinity. In the words of rock writer Dave Marsh, White males 18 to 34 are the most likely to see disco as the product of homosexuals, blacks, and Latins, and therefore they're the most likely to respond to appeals to wipe out such threats to their security. It goes almost without saying that such appeals are racist and sexist. Sheik's Nile Rogers compared the riot to a Nazi-era book burning. And so... Just as the bloody Altamont concert a decade earlier was an epitaph for the 60s counterculture, so the Comiskey Park riot became shorthand for the end of the disco era. It was though the rock fans staged a violent coup against disco, and incredibly, it succeeded. The disco bubble burst pretty quickly after Comiskey Park. Disco label owner Eddie O'Loughlin remembers just how quickly. Remarkably, the next day, disco was dead. It was like, you talk about fast... That was unbelievably fast. So people that knew me through all the 70s didn't want to know me so much after that. Hard to get people on the phone. I was so associated with the disco movement, and it was a very hurtful time to discover that, uh, oh, you're part of something that's over. And this is an unforgiving business. It's a harsh business. It's um, tough in that way, and you really have to be producing. And it was a very difficult time to fight back for myself, and it took me about three, four years clawing my way back and producing local hits. The same week as Disco Demolition Night, the latest chic single, Good Times, debuted in the top 10. No one knew it at the time, but Good Times would become the last hit of the disco era. Good times. And a fitting close it was. Against an unforgettable bass line, Sheik's female vocalist sang, in an emotionally drained tone that suggested that, well, those times were actually about to end. When Good Times entered the top 10 on July 21st, 1979, the top six records in the country were all disco records. But by the time it fell out of the top 10 on September 22nd, there were no disco records in the top 10 at all. 
The bubble had completely burst. Disco was declared dead. White kids, the media reported in relieved, even celebratory tones, were dancing to rock and roll again. And a rock record called My Sharona by a new wave group called The Knack replaced Good Times at number one and stayed there until October. Even now, Rogers was shocked at how quickly disco had become uncool. Well, the thing is that we didn't know that that Comiskey Park thing was going on. It happened while we were out of the country. We read about it. That's why I had two reactions. One was reading about it and saying, huh, that's interesting. And then two, coming home and seeing how almost the entire record industry had sort of ostracized us. It was like, wait a minute, we were happening. We had two number one pop records in the same year, in 79. It was strange that now all of a sudden nobody's calling us. A party that summer celebrating Sheik's success led the group's leaders to quickly decide to move on from disco and from Sheik itself. Nile Rogers recalls. It had a room that had the letters D-I-S-C-O over the dance floor part of it. So it was split half into a restaurant and half into a disco. And it was, you know, dinner in one room. And after dinner, we were supposed to go into the other room and dance. But now... No one wanted to go in the other room and dance. And so Bernard and I sat in that other room in the nice air-conditioned room all by ourselves and said, look at those guys. Those those are the guys who used to be our heroes. They're afraid to come in here just because it's a disco. And that was the end of Chic. And we wrote the album Real People as a result of that. We were so upset. And we said, real people, I I just want to be with some real people. Good Times fell out of the top 40 in October of 1979, coinciding with the release of the very first rap record, Rapper's Delight, which used Sheik's bassline as its musical basis. The glossy fantasy world of disco was being replaced by a harsher street cousin. By the way, Rapper's Delight was the subject of a previous episode of Speed of Sound, in case you want to check that out. Anyway, within a month, Ronald Reagan announced his candidacy for the presidency, and that led the way to a more conservative America. And that same month, 52 Americans were taken hostage in Iran. The 80s had jump-started a little bit early. Xenophobia was in the air. A popular backlash against sexual license became part of the conservative Reagan wave, and as a final exclamation point, a new mysterious gay cancer appeared that would soon be known as AIDS. Bobby Shaw remembers the impact of AIDS on the club scene. I think back in those days, the gay scene was so much more prevalent and more breaking records, and then when the AIDS epidemic happened, it wasn't, quote, as much fun anymore People were dying and, you know, kind of took the energy out of the the nightlife for some people. For a lot of people, people disappeared. Together, these developments ended what Nile Rodgers once called the most liberated era in the history of the world. And then, in November, Studio 54's owners pled guilty to tax evasion and embezzlement. IRS agents raided the club and found hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash hidden in trash bags inside the ceiling. Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager went to jail. 
1979 drew to an end, a few superstars managed to have big hits with disco songs that they'd concocted before they realized that the whole balloon was about to burst. Michael Jackson hit with Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. And the superstar duo of Donna Summer and Barbara Streisand topped the charts with Enough Is Enough. But in spite of these hits, Middle America was definitely saying enough is enough to disco itself. In fact, the hit movie Airplane, which was filmed in the summer of 79, poked fun at the death of disco by having the film's jet airliner smash through the control tower of a disco radio station in Chicago, of course. WZAZ in Chicago, where disco lives forever. The disco implosion brought to an end the hit-making days of most of the genre's biggest acts. Chic would never have another pop hit, although Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards went on to become one of the most successful producing teams in the world, working with everybody from Madonna to David Bowie to Duran Duran. And there would be no more hits for Sister Sledge, Peaches and Herb, Gloria Gaynor, or the producer Freddie Perrin. And the Village people faced the harsh reality of the post-disco world when they released their feature film, Can't Stop the Music, in 1980. It's the musical extravaganza that launches the 80s. It's Alan Carr's Can't Stop the Music. That film was met with complete derision. As for KC and the Sunshine Band, they'd managed to have one more number one record the next year before the hits dried up. But notably, it was with a ballad, the fittingly titled... Please don't go. And it would be 10 long years before the Bee Gees would have another top 10 record. They were just too identified with disco and its excesses. But Barry Gibb didn't spend the 80s moping in exile. He wrote and produced a string of monster hits with a long list of superstars from Barbara Streisand. And we got nothing to to Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. Alone among the stars of disco, it was Donna Summer who managed to reposition herself after the genre's demise. In 1980, she won a Grammy in the Best Female Rock Vocal category for Hot Stuff, which boded well for her ability to shed the disco label. And then she went on to make some really big pop records in the 80s, like 1983's She Works Hard for the Money, another record which mixed rock guitars and dance beats. Speaking of the 1980 Grammys, as an epilogue of sorts to the disco era, Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive won the one and only Grammy ever awarded in the Best Disco Song category. The dominance of disco at the 1979 awards had caused the creation of the category, and then the disco implosion later that year caused the category to be quickly eliminated. 
By the beginning of 1980, most of America's all disco radio stations abandoned the format. And in 1982, Billboard changed the name of the disco chart to the dance chart. Corey Robbins remembers the transition. The word disco was out. You couldn't use it. You couldn't say I'm making a disco record anymore. I think that was 79 or 80. But there were still there were still disco records. They were called dance records then. They just stopped calling them disco records. And also radio stopped playing them for a while. But the clubs didn't stop playing them. In the hangover from the major label's disco binge, the music industry suffered some real financial hardship. CBS had invested in all those new facilities to manufacture more vinyl LPs, anticipating a demand for disco records that never materialized. And because unsold records were completely returnable by the stores, the music industry was getting more and more returns. Coupled with the worsening recession, which also affected record sales, the record business found itself in a very dire situation for several years until it was rescued by Michael Jackson's thriller and the invention of the compact disc. Now, disco may have been over as an era, but it influenced everything that came after. Paradise Garage DJ Larry LeVan didn't miss a beat as the 80s dawned, and he became one of the pioneers of house music, that era's dominant dance sound. While the number of discos decreased dramatically, with a lot of those shopping mall discos closing after the bubble burst, the club scene continued to thrive, with subgenres ranging from house to high energy to Latin freestyle proving very worthy successors to the disco beat. And the synth pop that made it to America a couple of years into the 80s was directly influenced by disco, with British groups like Duran Duran, Heaven 17, New Order, The Human League, and Public Image Limited combining disco-influenced grooves with punk attitude. Incidentally, it's worth noting that in the rest of the world, disco never experienced that backlash or the sudden demise, and that meant that it was safe for alumni of the British punk scene to incorporate disco sounds, thus creating what would become 80s pop. Of course, hip-hop, which incubated in the discos of the South Bronx in the late 70s and which burst onto the national scene by lifting the musical track from good times, would ultimately become the most popular music genre in the world with 70s disco samples a staple of hip-hop sonic arsenal to this day. As Sheik's keyboardist Raymond Jones once observed, If disco really sucked in such a major way, hip-hop wouldn't have stepped in and appropriated it. Finally, despite Steve Dahl and the insane Coho Lips Army's best attempt to paint disco as the mortal enemy of rock and roll, in 2013, Donna Summer was elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The war was over, and disco may not have won, but it survived. And that wraps up this episode of Speed of Sound. 
Next time, we'll tackle the perfect intersection of pop music and pop culture with just the right dash of horror and a splash of comedy as we share the frighteningly fascinating story behind the Monster Mash. If you want to take a deeper dive into the artists and songs you just heard, check out our curated playlist at the Speed of Sound page on the iHeart app. Until next time, you can find me on Twitter at Stevie G Pro. Speed of Sound is executive produced by Lauren Bright Pacheco, Noel Brown, and me. Taylor Shacoin is our supervising producer, editor, and sound designer. Additional sound design by Tristan McNeil. Until next time, keep your feet on the dance floor and always keep reaching for that mirrored ball. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.